please be seated. Well, good morning. Uh, as Ross said, my name is Adam McNinch, uh, and uh, I can assure you I will not be singing this morning, contrary to what Ross is, Ross is saying. Uh, I'd like to give everyone a warm welcome today, whether you're a visitor or uh, a regular part of our, our family. I hope you enjoy a warm welcome as you worship with us. It is a bittersweet day, isn't it, as we say goodbye to our friends heading off to, to Gracemount. Uh, we love them uh, very much, and we have uh, enjoyed partnering with them uh, in the gospel over many years. And we trust that under God, uh, you'll see great fruit uh, as you head off to Gracemount. And it's my privilege to be preaching uh, on this occasion. Our passage this morning is Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 to 46. And that's on page 989 in the church Bibles. And if anyone still needs um, a, a Bible, I'm sure if you put your hand up, the stewards will provide you with one. Now, as uh, Ross already mentioned, there, there are people visiting here today, and there'll be some people here today too who are, who are new to Christianity. And I realize that jumping into chapter 21 uh, might be a bit confusing. So let me explain where we've got to in Matthew's Gospel. It's the Tuesday before Good Friday, the day when Jesus will be killed on the cross at Calvary. And Jesus is currently teaching in the temple. We see that from looking at verse 23. And we know uh, that Jesus is also teaching at this time. And he's interrupted by the chief priests and the elders. And they want to know by what authority he's doing the things that he's doing. He's been, he's, he's ridden into Jerusalem on a donkey, fulfilling a prophecy that had been made about him in the Old Testament. In verse 14 of chapter 21, we see him healing the blind and the lame. And in verse 18, we see him make a fig tree wither. He's demonstrating that he is the son of God. And yet these chief priests and the elders still want to question Jesus' authority. And so he uses three parables to draw out of the hearts what these religious thinkers are, uh, religious, religious leaders are, are thinking. We looked at the first parable last week. We're going to look at another one today, and we'll look at the third one in due course. So let's um, read verses 33 to uh, verse 46 of Matthew chapter 21. This is Jesus speaking. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time. And the tenants treated them in the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, This is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him a share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures 
The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Anyone who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. Anyone on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is God's word. Let's pray together before we come to look at this passage. Our Father God, we pray now that as we turn to your word, uh, the Holy Spirit would be our guide. We sang earlier that our love is so often cold, and we need your help this morning to to, not just to concentrate and to understand, but to apply what you wish, to, you wish to say to us, to our lives. We pray that you'd help us and meet with us as we study your word, and that you would change us to be more like your son, the Lord Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, in October last year, my family and I moved house, and uh, one of the most exciting things for the kids is having their own garden. Our son Noah, in particular, is obsessed with planting seeds at the moment. Every time he eats an apple, he talks about taking the seeds and sticking them in the soil in the back garden. He's really keen that we grow an apple tree. Well, we're watching a film last week, and we had some popcorn, and at the bottom of the, the, the popcorn packet, there were these unpopped kernels, these little seeds. And uh, Noah took the seeds, and he asked us if we could plant uh, a popcorn tree. And you maybe think this is a bit cruel. I don't know, maybe I'm just being optimistic. But we, we went ahead and we planted uh, the, the, the kernels. And um, poor little Noah is faithfully watering uh, the, these kernels every day. Uh, and at some point, I'm going to have to break it to him uh, that nothing's going to happen. There won't be a popcorn tree. The expected fruit is not going to come. And at the center of our parable today, there's another plot of ground. There's a vineyard. And the landowner who wished to collect the fruit of that vineyard from his tenants doesn't receive it. In the most dramatic fashion, the fruit is not handed over. And Jesus uses this story to, tell the, to, to give the listeners a really stark warning. And this morning, as we come to understand what this passage means, we're going to look at it in three parts. And the first thing I want you to see is this, the compassion God shows we know from Genesis 1 that all of mankind is made in God's image. But as the Old Testament progresses, he makes a covenant or a promise with a particular group of people called the Israelites. God says to this people in Exodus 19, Now if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you'll be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The vineyard in our passage this morning represents Israel. The people in the temple at the time of Jesus speaking would have understood this imagery. They would have understood the, the Old Testament scriptures like Isaiah 5 that Ross read for us, which depict Israel as God's vineyard. In another part of the Bible, in the Psalms, the psalmist writes, you transplanted a vine from Egypt, you drove out the nations and planted it, you cleared ground for it, and it took root and filled the land. Israel then is God's treasured vineyard, his treasured possession that he cares deeply for. And so if the vineyard 
is represented, representing Israel, then the landowner in our parable represents God. And notice from verse 33, the landowner's compassion for his vineyard. He protects the vineyard by putting a wall around it. And God does this for Israel in real life when he, he gives them these commandments to separate them from all the idolatry in the nations around them. Notice too that the landowner also puts a tower in the vineyard so that thieves can be spotted and the vineyard protected. Some people have said that uh, Jerusalem with its temple was the watchtower for Israel, and that may well be what is in view here. But whatever is meant by this, this metaphor, the underlying point is clear. As the landowner in the parable cares for his vineyard, so God cares for his people, Israel. And as the story of the Old Testament progresses, God's love for Israel is further evidenced by the number of chances that he gives Israel to turn back to him. God showed his faithfulness to Israel time after time in spite of, God's, in spite of Israel's continued unfaithfulness. God was so kind to Israel, so generous, so patient, so loving, so protective. And we'll see this in greater detail shortly. Yet although God was compassionate, Israel failed to keep their part of the promise. They didn't obey God, and they didn't keep the, the, the covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai completely. And they did the same with all the other covenants in the Old Testament. And yet God, incredibly, not only keeps loving them, but makes a new covenant with them, an unbreakable covenant that would be everlasting. This new covenant is promised by Jeremiah and fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jeremiah said that this law would be written on people's hearts, not on tablets of stone. The old covenants were not needed because Jesus was the once and for all sacrifice and he alone would make the people holy. And not just Israelite people, but believers everywhere. Belief in Christ is what counted rather than being born an Israelite. And by this everlasting covenant, the gospel of God uh, is now uh, shown to believers everywhere, not just Israel. We often sing these words, um, Father-like, he tends and spares us, well our feeble frame he knows. In his arms he gently bears us, rescues us from all our foes. Praise him, praise him, alleluia, widely as his mercy flows. And my question for you is whether you know this Father-like compassion. Do you see it in the way God... Uh, the, the landowner tends his vineyard, Israel. Do you see it in the way that God sent his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die for sinners everywhere? Earthly fathers can be good or bad or somewhere in between, but God the Father is compassionate, compassionate to undeserving Israel and compassionate to undeserving sinners like us. So verse 33 is meant to picture God's compassion on his people, but how does this parable picture Israel's response? Well, that's our second point. Let's look at it together and see the thanks that God gets. And I've deliberately, deliberately put the word thanks in inverted commas because they're really not thankful at all. Look at the way the tenants treat the servants who come to collect the fruit, who come to collect what was rightfully due to the landowner. We see that they do three things. They withhold the fruit, uh, they mistreat the servants, and they murder the heir, the landowner's son. It's a complete and utter rejection of the most horrible kind. 
Their rent was supposed to be paid in fruit, in other words, the, the produce that they had grown on the land. And the landowner was quite entitled to collect this as rent. The tenants in this parable, of course, represent the Jews who rejected the prophets and who ultimately rejected Jesus, the promised Messiah, the promised king who would save the Jews. And the servants represent the prophets whom God sent again and again to Israel to warn them to turn from their sin and turn towards God and to give up their idolatry and worship the one true God. And the way the, the tenants in this passage treat the servants mirrors the way that Israel treats the prophets that God had sent to speak on his behalf. So we can see that they beat one of the servants, and that's just the way, like the way Jeremiah the prophet was beaten. We also see that they kill another one, and this reflects what Jezebel was doing to the Lord's prophets in the book of 1 Kings. And then they stone the third servant, which is exactly what happened to Zechariah. And then extra servants are sent in verse 36, even more than the last time, and they're treated in the same way. It seems a bit crazy to, to keep sending servants like this. They're being sent like lambs to the slaughter. I wonder if people hijacked your place of work, uh, whether you'd keep sending in people like this. These are not people to be reasoned with. But this takes us back to the first point, that God is a compassionate God. And even though Israel rejects him terribly, he gives them more than enough warnings to come back to him. So the tenants withhold the fruit and they mistreat the servants, but they murder the heir as well, as we see in verse 38. The son is sent to the vineyard finally to gather in the fruit, uh, to do what the servants were unable to do. And there's no prizes for guessing who this is meant to represent. It's meant to represent the Lord Jesus Christ, the, the last prophet, prophet, and the tenants don't treat the son any better. We read that they throw him out of the vineyard in the same way that Jesus was thrown out of the synagogue and given to the Romans to be crucified outside of the gate of Jerusalem at Calvary. And it's interesting in verse 40 that when Jesus asks the chief priests and the elders what the owner will do to the tenants when he comes back, they don't actually have any difficulty answering the question. It's like in 2 Samuel chapter 12 when David has committed adultery with Bathsheba and Nathan the prophet tells him this short parable about a rich man who steers, steals a, a poor man's little lamb. King David understands that the rich man in the story should be punished for what he's done. And in the same way in verse 41 of our passage, the chief priests and the elders understand that these wicked tenants must face the consequences of their actions. But there's more than simply judgment in the chief priest and the elders' response. They tell Jesus what the landowner should do next. He should turn his attention to, to other tenants, to new tenants, who give him the share of the crop at harvest time. Basically, they recognize that this is not the thanks that the landowner deserves. They just don't get that this parable is applying to them. They don't get that the way that they've treated the Lord Jesus and the way their ancestors treated God's prophets is not the thanks that God deserved for his great compassionate passion towards them. So I think we can say that the, the, the religious people understand the parable, but they just don't get the point behind it. But then King David didn't get the point behind the prophet 
uh, Nathan's parable either. David needed Nathan to spell it out to him. He needed him to say, this story is about you. You're the rich man in this story who stole the little lamb. You're the one who hated God and stole Uriah the Hittite's wife. And in the same way, the chief priests and the elders needed Jesus to point out that they're the wicked tenants in this parable. He says in verse 42, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Here Jesus is taking uh, this passage in Psalm 118 and he's applying it to himself. It originally applied to Israel. Israel hated the nation, was hated by the nations around it and threatened by them on every side. But God made them his cornerstone. But now Jesus says, that's me. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the new Israel, the better Israel, the true Israel. Unlike the old Israel, Jesus was faithful to God, truly righteous. Unlike the old Israel, Jesus committed no sin. But like the old Israel, he was despised and rejected. Not ultimately by other nations, but as we've seen throughout Matthew, and as we'll see on Good Friday, by people who are supposed to be his own. So Jesus takes the image of the stone which was rejected by the builders and says that it's about him. It's pointing to his own rejection and his own death. Now you might ask the question, how does this story, this parable about the vineyards and the tenants and Israel and Israelites apply to us in 21st century Edinburgh? Well, it might not be easy to hear this, but there are probably people here this morning who are exactly like these religious types. You've witnessed Jesus' work at first hand. You've been coming to church for some time. You've heard testimonies as we've had baptismal services. You've spent time with a variety of people in this church who are broken and fully dependent on the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet the thanks you're giving God at this time is the same as the religious leaders. You're rejecting his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're doing exactly what the Lord Jesus said of the chief priests in verse 32, as we saw last week. You've seen great things of God in his word and in people's lives, and yet you still haven't repented and you still haven't believed in him. Maybe others of you have had, had questions answered. You've been to courses which explore the claims of Christianity, and yet like the religious leaders, right, like these uh, chief priests and elders, you remain indignant. Look back with me um, at verse 14 of chapter 21. We looked at this a few weeks ago. I wonder if you identify with the people in this passage. Jesus is healing the blind and the lame. And there's kind of two camps here, two categories of people. There's the children who say, Hosanna to the son of David. But then there's also the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Look at verse 15. They saw the wonderful things that God is doing. But instead of shouting Hosanna to the son of David, they remain indignant. They are hard-hearted, unresponsive, lacking in humility. And, and that may well be some of you today. And my challenge would be to, to be like the children in this passage, to submit yourself to the Lord Jesus. I don't know if you know what Hosanna means, but it's, it's a combination of two phrases. It means save, and it means I beseech you, I, I, I urge you. And the call this morning is to ask the Lord Jesus to save you, to save you urgently. That is what you need. Don't be like the tenants who, who, who continued to refuse to give to God what he was due. 
who refuse to respond to his repeated appeals. Instead, the call is to, to repent and to believe. To, to repent as in turn away from your old life, your old sinful, selfish life, and turn towards God and believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. And do it today. God is patient. We see that in this passage. But he's only patient so that you'll repent. That patience, as we'll see shortly, is not unending. I want to spend the last part of our time together this morning thinking about what Jesus said uh, under this, this next heading, the judgment that God brings. There's two parts to this. God's judgment takes away his kingdom from these people, but secondly, it brings his destruction to them. In verse 43, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce fruit. Throughout Israel's history, God has ruled his people through religious leaders like these people in our story today. But because these leaders failed to, to follow God, they failed God so badly and rejected the Lord Jesus Christ, God gave that role to another people, a people that would produce fruit. Producing fruit has been a, a key part of Matthew's gospel. The fruit Jesus is talking about is righteousness and love. And as we saw in chapter 7, it's doing the will of the Father. That is what producing fruit looks like. And way back in chapter 3, John the Baptist commands the religious leaders to produce fruit in keeping with righteousness, and yet they refuse to do it. And so God's original promises to the nation of Israel are now opened up to a new group of people. Just as the rented vineyard is given to other tenants who will give the landowner the share of crops that he's rightfully due, so the kingdom of God and all the privileges that it includes will be taken away from these religious people and given to a new people. But who is this new people? Well, ultimately, it's the church, a nation of Gentiles and Christ-believing Jews that are gathered together. I think it's important to underline the fact that the Gentiles are not replacing the Jews as the people of God. We know this from Romans 11, when it's only the Jews who reject Jesus that are removed from the olive tree. The, the Gentiles join in rather than replace the remnant of believing Jews as God's people. We see this in other parts of Matthew's gospel as well, that the Jews form part of the nations that are to be evangelized by Jesus' followers. So the Israelites are not being written off. The key is repentance and belief in Jesus Christ. That's something that leaders have so far failed to do. And so what we can see here is, is, is continuity and, and discontinuity. God's kingdom, in other words, his reign and his rule continues. That's the continuity. But the discontinuity is the sense in which the kingdom community grows. It expands. It broadens out beyond just the borders of Israel. It includes Gentiles now. And what I want to get across this morning is the fact that membership in God's family is not an automatic thing. It's not based on privilege. It's not based on, on family or ethnicity or any other qualification other than repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. As a young person or younger person, uh, I had uh, the privilege of being brought up in a, a Christian home. And there's no doubt that there were times that I depended on my parents' own good standing 
in the church. And if you're a young person here today, you, you can't do that. There's no, there's no privilege based on your background when it comes to the kingdom community. You cannot presume you're safe from God's judgment because of your family's faith. It has to be personal. You yourself have to repent and believe. So what does this membership of God's community look like then? Well, we sang earlier, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. No merit of my own I claim, but holy trust in Jesus' name. And that is what our dependence is on. And those who have this hope will produce fruit. That's what the story of the, the wise man and the, the, the wise and foolish builder, sorry, in chapter 7 taught us. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And so this saves us from complacency, doesn't it? John the Baptist warning to the religious leaders in chapter 3 to produce fruit in keeping with repentance is a warning to us. Repentance comes first, and then out of that repentance flows a life of fruitfulness, of doing the Lord's will, and of being useful in his service. And there's lots of opportunities to be fruitful in our church. Every morning when we sit in, uh, Sunday morning, when we sit and pray through there in the Anderson room, you see these pictures of, of previous pastors of this church, and there is no doubt that we've been blessed by every one of them. But the interesting thing is when you read the history of this church in uh, Ian Balfour's book, there's a massive emphasis on the work that has been done in this church over 200 years by the lay members, by the congregation. It's, it's right on the first page. It says, lay, partici lay participation was an outstanding feature of the chapel during the whole of the 20th century. And later on, comparing um, chapel members with, with Abraham's wife, Sarah, he says, there are many Sarahs whose contribution has gone unrecorded. Most have preferred it that way, wishing their Christian service to be anonymous. But without them, the life and witness of the chapel would long since have withered away. Interesting that the language used there reflects the, the language that we've seen uh, about the, the fig tree. So lay participation was an outstanding feature of the chapel during the whole of the 20th century. The challenge is today will it be a continued element of our church life in the 21st century. We look back with thankfulness over 200 years, but there is much work for each of us to do now. It's often said from this pulpit that um, just because we've arrived in Shanwick Place, that doesn't mean that we've really arrived. There's still much work to be done. There's work to be done in this city, work to be done in this nation and overseas under God to see his kingdom expand and to see more people brought into his church. What Jesus seems to be saying is that to be fruitful, that's what it means to enter the kingdom of, God, of heaven. And so if there are areas in our church we, where we can see real tangible fruit for the gospel, we need to help these areas of growth flourish. And that might mean pruning other areas. And for our brothers and sisters who are heading off to Grace Mount, I'm sure you've given a lot of thought about what it means to, to be fruitful in Grace Mount. Lots of thought about what is going to be most productive for the kingdom. And the challenge for you will be, as God willing you grow, to keep that laser focus 
on what it means to be fruitful. We're at the other extreme in this church, those of us that are left behind. It's a big established church with lots of activities. And sometimes it's hard to let go of things that have maybe been fruitful in the past. Even with my basic understanding of, of horticulture from planting popcorn seeds, uh, I know that in order to, to be fruitful, you need, you need to prune. But that is a, a necessary and often painful task in the church. I think it's fair to say that we've taken our eyes off church planting in, in, in recent years. We used to be prolific at it. But there, there seems to be a renewed commitment to it nowadays. But what do we need to do to be fruitful at church planting, to make us fruitful at getting this gospel out to parts of this city and further afield where it's not preached regularly? If there's one thing we must learn from the judgment God brings on these religious leaders, it's not to presume on him. The question for us is, how are we going to be fruitful in our day? The second part of this judgment that God brings is in verse 44. This is a judgment that brings destruction upon the people. This verse speaks of the crushing defeat that God's enemies will face. There is no escape. God's patience will eventually give way to judgment. And though Jesus came the first time in humility and uh, being despised, he'll come a second time in majesty and power to take home those who have repented and believed in him. The point that the religious leaders need to hear is quite simple. If you reject me, I will ultimately reject you. That is what Jesus is saying. And the irony is that these religious leaders have been told that if they reject Jesus, they'll be crushed. They know that this parable now is, is about them. We see that at the end of, of the passage. But instead of taking this message on board, they look for a way to arrest Jesus and they begin the, the situation that, were, that they were warned about. The landowner's son in this parable was thrown out of the vineyard and he was killed. And three days after telling this parable, Jesus would suffer the same fate. He'd be handed over to be crucified. Of course, in God's sovereignty, this most terrible of days would accomplish the marvelous salvation of his people, the bringing in of a new covenant under which we have the privilege of serving today. But my plea to you today as we finish is to not be like these tenants, to not be like these religious leaders. Don't reject the compassion of God. Don't take advantage of his patience. The consequences are truly dreadful. Instead, repent, believe, and bear fruit. And when you've done these things, keep on going. Keep producing fruit. Fruit for God's kingdom. Fruit that will last. Let's pray. Father God, this passage is packed with, with warnings. Warnings about rejecting you. Warnings about presuming on your goodness. Warnings about being unfruitful. Warnings about what the coming judgment will look like for those who have not repented or believed in your Son, the Lord Jesus. Father God, we pray that you would help us to heed these warnings. Even today would people repent and believe in your Son. Today would you make us 
more determined to be fruitful with the lives that you have given us. We ask all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, our next song is...